Welcome back to the show, Daisy. Has March been a particularly difficult month for you with all that is happening on the global stage right now? I think it's been a really difficult month for everybody, hasn't it? Um, you know, we were just getting through Omicron at the start of the year and, and thinking that things might get back to normal a little bit. And now all of a sudden we're seeing these truly heartbreaking and really very scary uh, scenes on the TV, uh, all these stories coming out from Ukraine. Um, I have to say the Ukrainian people are you know, unbelievably resilient. And I think many of us are just awestruck at how many have taken our arms and they're you know, fighting for their, their future and their country. Um, but I have to say, it's been really very heartbreaking to see some of the awful, awful images. And I think many people are really quite scared about where it will all end up. And that's even before we get to, you know, the cost of living crisis and some of the very hefty bills that are coming through people's doors as well. So um, I'm very acutely aware that it's been a very difficult month for lots of people. And that's definitely been reflected in the kind of emails that um, and, and letters that I've been receiving over the last month. Let's talk about the Ukrainian issue. And, and we do have to start off with the defensive side because the UK government has come into action. It's tried to be as robust enough as possible. But do you think that it has done enough in supporting Ukraine's efforts in defending itself? So um, I think credit where credit's due, I think this is the one area that the government has actually got right to, to a large extent. And Ben Wallace, who is the defence secretary, has actually done a pretty good job, I would say. Um, the Ukrainian uh, government itself has thanked the UK for providing um, you know, weapons and, and training. Um, and of course, there probably will be more that they need. And I hope that the UK government continues to give anything that the Ukrainian uh, government asks for. So it's important that we maintain that. So I think the government has got that bit right. The areas where I think the government has got horrible horribly unstuck is that I don't think the government's taken anywhere near enough action to tackle the influence of Russian money in the UK um, and in our property market and in our businesses and influence in our democracy um, and of course I don't need you know you don't need me to tell you this uh, with the um, refugee system as well which has just been just shameful I think and it has brought real shame on our country in terms of the red tape and bureaucracy that has that is and continues to fail many people who are, are fleeing war. Well that does bring me on to my next question because there has been so many uh, discussed problems around the Ukraine refugee settlement. Um, in terms of it then do you believe that maybe the government in this sense is working in a political way. It's more concerned about keeping commitment to voters rather being pragmatic at a time of ever-changing world events or or is it incompetence? I mean, what, what do you believe the reasons are for this? I think it's a bit of both. I think it's partly ideological in that, you know, it is very clear that the Conservative government, and I do mean the government as opposed to many Conservative backbenchers, the Conservative government in particular is just very anti-people coming to this country, quite frankly, and the systems are incredibly hostile. So I think there's an ideological opposition, but I do think there's a lot of just good old-fashioned home office bureaucracy. And whoever desi designed the system for people fleeing war who might want to come here, I mean, clearly has absolutely no experience of what a warlike system is like. You know, I was getting stories through my constituents of their family members who have maybe had five minutes to leave their apartment. And at best, they might have managed to grab 
a wedding certificate or a passport at best. But in many cases, they, they, they had to flee without anything at all, literally the clothes on their back and maybe their handbag and, you know, the cat or the dog or, and a ton of small child. Um, and yet the system required, you know, when we first started campaigning on this several weeks ago, the Home Office system required people to upload information in English, uh, uh, request certain documents, required those documents to be, to be translated into English. I mean, how on earth you do that on a mobile phone that's running out of battery? I, I do not know when you're, you know, running away from bombs and everything else. Um, and then they got to a particular processing centre and then were told they had to then travel, you know, several hours to get to another processing centre where they had to fill in another form and then travel back again the next day. I mean, it just, it was not designed by anybody who had any idea about how these things work. And so we've been battling away with that kind of system um, and there have been some improvements, but now there is the next hurdle is that although the government's introduced this um, Homes for Ukraine scheme, it hasn't established any of the mechanisms to actually vet the sponsors. So we have people who are wanting to come to the UK and there are sponsors in the UK saying we're ready to open our homes and our hearts. But those checks haven't been done and they are important safeguarding checks that need to be done. But the government hasn't even issued the guidance yet, let alone giving councils the money to run those uh, enhanced safeguarding checks. So, again, you know, we're, we're still going to be waiting for many weeks to come for that sponsorship scheme to even get up and running. And on this specific issue, Daisy, you actually shared a really deeply saddening story of one of your constituents, 74-year-old Ukrainian mum and the struggle that they had to get through to the UK. Um, You described it as an utterly shameful behaviour from the Home Office. Is there a positive update on this constituent's mother, though? Yes, there is. Excuse me. Um, and I can tell you that she is now safely in the UK. Um, obviously, you understand that's all I can share um, you know, without their permission to share any more. But she is safely here uh, in the UK. And um, other uh, constituents ha- who have been helping their family members get to the UK uh, have also managed to get here as well. Um, as you might imagine, um, I won't go into any individual cases, but collectively there are reports of individuals who are clearly very, very shocked um, and are very traumatised. And um, it's going to take them clearly a great deal of time uh, to adjust to everything that's happened in such a short period of time. Um, but for now, um, the, all the families that I've been helping, bar one, um, have all managed to get their relatives over to the UK and they are here safely. Now, you've uh, already kind of brought the the subject up of Russian uh, interference in British democracy. And full fairness, uh, again, you know, I talked to you, I talked to Bambus and I talked to to Bim. So all the the parties, differing views are there so that people can listen on Radio Verulam. But I did speak to Bim on this issue. He previously expressed that he thought that voter IDs were very necessary. But when I challenged him on the Russian threats to UK democracy that have gone unchecked as far he said this issue does not need to be revisited and that it was dealt with as best as they can however do you think that this is now the time to investigate russian interference in the uk democracy Uh, one example is the brexit vote i mean i think it should have been the second that there were any reports that a foreign country or a foreign entity of any description could potentially have been even attempting to influence our politics successfully or otherwise, even the fact they were trying to influence our politics should have sent uh, sent off alarm bells with any government of any political colour. And um, it's never a case, you know, there's always 
there's always um, policies where politicians will say now is not the right time. But literally the second that any government had heard that, they should have initiated some kind of investigation into this. What we've seen is years and years and years of this government turning a blind eye to accusations of interference in our democracy, um, including by Russia, but potentially not exclusively by Russia. Um, And there, of course, was the Russia report. Uh, The Russia report was published, but the Russia report concluded that there weren't any examples of uh, successful interference on the basis that the government hadn't actually looked for any uh, uh, examples of interference. And so the Liberal Democrats have uh, called for a proper investigation into uh, the uh, influence of Russia uh, in our politics and in our democracy in the UK. I think it should be a source of concern to everybody, irrespective of how they voted in the Brexit votes. You know, it's not about revisiting that result. It's about saying there are foreign actors who are trying to destabilise the Western world and indeed the international global order. And if they're trying to influence our politics, um, then we all should be concerned about that. And there does need to be a thorough investigation. And it simply cannot wait any longer. And in terms of that, uh, as you've mentioned there, the wording of no attempt made by the government or intelligence services to investigate, does that worry you going forward that there's a lack of accountability of our democratic system? Yes, I mean, it, it does really, really worry me. I mean, the fact is that you know there have been reports for years and years and years that there um, and suggestions that there could be interference. And I find it really, truly shocking um, that the government hasn't investigated this properly when there when there clearly have been reports. I mean, I I'm, I'm loath to speculate on the motivations of why that hasn't happened. Um, you know, we know, for example, that you know the, the Conservative government does receive money from some Russian donors. Uh, the government's been very defensive about that and said, well, you know, just because they're Russian doesn't mean they're connected to Putin. Well, we know that some of them are. Um, and um, you know, but beyond that, I mean, it, it really we really end up in a very dark and scary place if we think that you know a government of any colour is prepared to um, hear these reports and not investigate them. So I really, really hope that um, that every Conservative MP and the Conservative government have a wake-up moment and do launch a proper investigation because it's for all of our benefits, it's for the sake of the country and it's about the national interest, it's not about party politics. Let's move it to comments from Foreign Secretary Liz Truss. Uh, she said that the Russian invasion of Ukraine shows that the era of complacency is over. Uh, she also called for more defence spending and an end of dependence on hostile and authoritarian states. Um, but does this kind of condemn 11 years of Conservative Party rule? Because obviously they have been the ones in charge of this so-called era of of complacency again but do you think that if the liberal democrats had been in power they would have done things differently well i mean the idea of hindsight uh, and you know conjecture out what we could or could not have done uh, is is a nice uh, you know opportunity to have what i'd like to think is that we would have investigated uh, any reports about Russian interference in our democracy, that the Russia report would have been more thorough, that it would have been published much sooner, and that the recommendations, that obviously there were some recommendations that came out of the Russia report, perhaps in a different world they might have been stronger, um, and those recommendations would have been implemented. Certainly what I can say 
is that the Liberal Democrats have been calling for years and years for um, a, a register of uh, properties uh, where they are owned by where those properties are owned by people who live abroad, um, and uh, the government is finally bringing that forward. But my goodness, it's been like pulling teeth to to make that happen. Um, and so that register of a beneficial interest is something that we've been calling for for years. Um, I asked about it when I was first elected, uh, and I pressed the government on that point. And here we are, you know, more than two years on, and it's only just starting to happen so um, I would like to think that we that we would have taken action and certainly if you look at our our voting record and the way in which we've raised these issues over the last couple of years you can see a track record that we have indeed raised them so I would like to think that had we have uh, been anywhere near government that we would have taken stronger action from the get-go and on this issue of uh, as Liz Truss has put it herself hostile and authoritarian states do you think that this means that if the Conservative Party and the Conservative government are true to their word, that they should have a new approach to authoritarian allies like Saudi Arabia? Well, this is one of the really big issues that the Conservative government have got to get their heads around, which is um, the global order is changing. And uh, really, if you think about it, there's China, there's Russia, there's America, and there's the EU. And those are really the four big players in today's world. Um, obviously, the UK has decided to leave the European Union, uh, and that has happened. So we've weakened our ties with the EU. And under the Conservative government's trajectory, we're moving further away from the EU. Of course, um, I'm relieved that uh, Biden is now president and we're not still dealing with President Trump. Um, but nonetheless, President Biden clearly is, um, I would say, also in retreat um, away from sort of the international order. Um, we saw that in Afghanistan. Um, and really, we're now having to look to find allies around the world, both for our energy supplies and for promoting our values. And of course, um, I'm very concerned that um, uh, that Boris Johnson was in Saudi Arabia going cap in hand to a country asking for effectively trying to get an oil deal. He came away without doing that deal. Um, and yet there were people in that country who were executed whilst whilst he was there. Um, and we have to make a decision as a country about who our friends and allies are. And I think it would be um, a, a really, really bad move if we start to try and do trade with countries and do deals with countries and ignore their human rights records. You know, we have a proud history uh, in the UK of advocating human rights improvements and advances around the world. Um, and I think we need to think very seriously about how we are going to make sure we don't sacrifice uh, human rights uh, around the world at the altar of, of getting good trade. Bringing it to uh, domestic criticism of the Prime Minister himself, he's come under scrutiny because of comments surrounding John Burko, the former Speaker of the House. Uh, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, said that he welcomes the finding against John Burko, but his spokesman also said there's no place for bullying or harassment in public life. However, do you believe that the Prime Minister should also have shared similar sentiments about Home Secretary Priti Patel, who broke the ministerial code when she was found to have bullied staff? 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, Boris Johnson should have sacked her then and there. Um, that's what the ministerial code says. And I think the prime minister set up a really dangerous precedent by not following through on the ministerial code, not protecting it. And that's part of the problem we now have in this country, um, is that we have a prime minister who doesn't uphold the ministerial code and our democracy doesn't have a, a system in place to deal with a prime minister who ignores the codes that are, that we've relied on by convention for, for such a long time. Um, I would say the situations clearly are very different. I completely condemn uh, John Burko's behaviour. I mean, I wasn't an MP when he was the speaker, so I you know, never met him or, or worked with him or anything like that. But the report into his behaviour was utterly damning. And there is no place for bullying in any workplace anywhere, including in Parliament, um, and I think it was fairly conclusive um, that, that he'd been found have found guilty of that. So um, absolutely shocked uh, to read that and, and condemn it entirely. But you're right, you know, we need to have uh, a Prime Minister who is prepared to uphold standards in public life, and that includes upholding the ministerial code. And, you know, there's been a number of occasions, including this one, where he's failed to do so. Let's turn it to, uh, you mentioned at the start of the discussions, but the cost of living crisis. Many experts have described this current cost of living crisis as the worst in three decades. Yesterday, the Chancellor announced his spring statement. He cut fuel duty by 5p, resisted calls to scrap the April national insurance rise. I mean, do you believe that this help will be enough for those desperately in need during these trying times? No, it won't touch the sides. It really, really won't. I mean, if you think about how quickly the price of fuel has gone up, a 5p cut simply takes us back to where we were last week. I mean, it's not a significant cut at all. Um, you know, it's really it's really not that significant. And so it's, it it's just isn't going to touch the sides. You know, with the national insurance hike um, as well, I mean, this is a really unfair tax um, and you know, the Liberal Democrats have said, yes, you know, we are a party that has been advocating for the last three general elections a, a policy of increasing tax to pay for health and social care. But we suggested doing it through a fairer tax, not through national insurance, which we think is a really unfair way of doing it. So I do think that that national insurance um, uh, tax rise should have been scrapped. Obviously, the government hasn't done that. I think this 5p cut to fuel just doesn't even go, doesn't go far enough. Uh, it doesn't do anything to help people who don't drive um, and of course it's you know I think some people have calculated that it would be about equivalent of 70 pounds saving a year I think for an average household when energy bills are going up by you know more than a grand for your heating bill or what have you and that's even before the price of food and everything else so um, I, I don't think the, the Chancellor has recognised the scale of the challenge and how scary it is for many people because you know I you, you used to be saying this Jason you know we've got St Albans is on average a wealthy kind of place but we do have lots of people in St Albans who are struggling to get by we have thousands of people in St Albans who are using food banks and who are scared to put their heating on and the vast majority of these people are people who are working many years often they have two or three jobs and they still cannot afford to put their heating on and to have a hot meal and that should really really worry us all and um, you know Liberal Democrats made some very bold proposals we talked about cutting VAT across the board from 20% down to 17.5% we've talked about having a windfall tax on the um, excess profits of big oil and gas companies on the profits that they weren't even expecting so that we can reduce people's energy bills and I have to say we put forward those big bold ideas in the hope that the uh, Chancellor might adopt some of our ambition and what we saw yesterday as they doesn't touch the sides 
during times of extreme economic crisis, we've also seen shifts in economic models. Um, looking to France, EDF Energy is 80% owned by the French government. They were able to cap prices at 4% instead of over here where it's 54% rise in one day. I mean, does this renew calls for nationalising an industry that is not giving a capitalistic market of choice? Um, I'm sure some people will will revert to that. I, I think really what it uh, what, what it says for me is that we need to think very seriously about our energy security. I don't think it's actually about whether it's a nationalised or a privatised system. I think the thing is, have we got um, energy security? Can we provide the vast majority of our own energy? And at, at the moment, we can't. Uh, and that's because um, you know the government has failed to put in place a long-term plan to grow renewables in this country. Now, when my party leader, Ed Davey, was uh, climate minister, uh, in, during the coalition years, he almost quadrupled the amount of energy that we got from wind power because of the amount of effort the government put into making sure that we invested in renewables. If that, if the Conservative government had kept up that level of investment, um, then perhaps we would be less reliant on um, on gas and oil from from other countries. So actually, I think the the more immediate discussion, rather than getting into the bun fight about whether we should have you know privatised or nationalised systems, we need to make sure that we have our own energy security. We need to talk about food security as well, because one of the big issues post Brexit is that Liz Truss is going around the world negotiating trade deals that are really bad for our farmers and that's a really bad thing because if our farmers go out of business and they can't afford to keep farming then we're going to have to reply, rely on food from other parts of the world which could become uh, unstable because of climate or war or anything else and we're seeing that in Ukraine at the moment so there's a very serious question about having a long-term strategy to guarantee our own security both in terms of health and energy food and energy. So we've got one last question before we go to the community questions. You presented a bill this month to create a duty on the government to provide safe and secure accommodation for all women leaving prison. Why is this such an important piece of legislation and can you update us on the progress of it? Sure. Uh, well, I'll answer, them, answer those in reverse, uh, reverse order. So the first thing to say is that the government really controls the legislative agenda in Parliament. Uh, what I tabled was a private members bill. Um, because there's not long left of this particular parliamentary session until it breaks up and we have another Queen's speech, this bill is probably going to fall, which means it won't get into law and it probably won't even get the chance of a debate. But by tabling this piece of legislation, I am putting it on the government's radar and drawing their attention to this particular issue. And the reason why I think this issue is particularly important is because men and women go into the legal system and go into prison uh, from different routes and, they, and when they come out of prison, very different things happen to them. So of course, I would like there to be safe and secure accommodation for everybody that leaves prison. But because it was International Women's Day, I wanted to highlight the fact that when women come out of prison, they're often far more vulnerable and they're at risk of exploitation way more than men are. So whereas men who may not be given safe and secure accommodation might end up sleeping rough, a woman might end up, um, a woman who's gone into prison is far more likely to have um, been in a, uh, have been in an abusive relationship, may end up having nowhere to go but to go back to that abusive relationship and that then in turn may perpetuate some of the behaviours um, and law breaking that 
saw that person go into prison in the first place. And so I think because of the level of exploitation that women face when they come out of prison, if they, they're not given somewhere secure, um, I wanted to highlight that issue. And there is a very large campaign around it. There's lots of campaign groups working together. And so after the next Queen's speech, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to put it on the government's radar again. Let's move it to the community questions. And John has raised the issue to do with Ukrainian and and refugees, I guess, in general. Uh, He's highlighted, you know, the fact that it's safe to say the Home Office has struggled at every stage. But he wants to know how are Ukrainian refugees going to be managed? What is the cost per family paying for? Is there an underlying plan? And will you, as one of the opposition parties, hold the government to account for this management? So I wish I could actually share some details with John. <clears throat> the problem is that there aren't any details yet. So um, last week, uh, the government had said that it was going to publish guidelines within a week for local authorities. And um, those guidelines I checked today, uh, actually it's a couple of hours ago, actually, um, uh, for some casework, and those guidelines haven't been published yet. So local authorities are still waiting for guidelines from central government in terms of how much money they're going to get, how that money is going to be divided between the different layers of councils, how much of it will go to uh, the county council, which does health and education, and how much will go to the district council, which does a lot of the safeguarding as well as um, a first port of call for services. Um, we don't have any of that guidance yet. Uh, district councils will be expected to do the safeguarding checks, but it's not clear which safeguarding checks will be required, uh, or um, as yet they still don't even have the information about how many people in their areas have volunteered, so they won't even know how many homes or families they have to run those checks on. Uh, it's still very much up in the air. So um, I wish I could give John uh, some more information, but I'm afraid there just isn't any yet. Um, I have already spoken to my, I spoke to my team a couple of hours ago and said, look, if this guidance doesn't come out by tomorrow uh, on Friday, then we'll be writing to the government first thing Monday morning to say, where the hell is this guidance? Um, because actually, you know, we now have refugees who are being, you know, refugees who are in Calais, who have got sponsor homes here in the UK and in St Albans, people wanted to take them in and they can't because the government hasn't put those systems in place. So when I have the information, I'll share it. Jane has moved it on to a very heartbreaking topic. She sent a very lengthy email to me about the plight of her child, but I think it's shared by many children across the country. Uh, Her daughter has had COVID and it has seriously affected her. It's given her long COVID. She's now had to drop to just studying two GCSEs and this is really affecting her future. Um, I can pass that information on to you. It's, It's a very lengthy email as well. And she said she would like to discuss it with you. But she said that her daughter feels isolated, sick, fearful of her future and is now reduced timetable of just six hours a week due to her illness um she's asked you please daisy can you help and get the government to support these children with long covid and update the law to adequately protect our children yeah if you can pass on those details or if jane wants to contact me then i'd be very very happy to take up her case i mean first of all to her to her daughter i mean my heart breaks for her um it really really does um you know this is one of the issues where i do think the government hasn't um taken the risks of long COVID on board, particularly amongst uh, young children. But of course, it's affecting, uh, it seems to affect people in a very kind of random kind of way. You know, we've we've probably all seen stories on the TV of people who were fit and healthy and running marathons, and, and now they're really not able to do anything like that. Um, so it, it must be heartbreaking, uh, both for Jane and her daughter. Um, 
the Liberal Democrats have been very vocal on this issue already in Parliament. We have asked the government to recognise it as an occupational disease. We have asked them to put more funding into research around it and support. Um, I think that one of my colleagues, uh, don't hold me to this, but I think one of my colleagues has a debate coming up possibly next week, uh, but I can double check that. Um, but if Jane wants to write to me, I will certainly write to education ministers and ask them what more can be done uh, to make sure that her daughter is given the best possible chance in life, notwithstanding the fact that she's really, really struggling right now. Yeah, let's hope there's a positive outcome for Jane and her daughter there. Dayson has moved it on to discussions about the Luton Airport expansion. He's expressed uh, his concern of you opposing the expansion, which um, uh, he, he opens out the argument saying that COVID has really cost the aviation sector and it is struggling financially. Not only will the modest expansion bring a much needed jobs and revenue boost to the local area and the regional economy, but it would also be done in a carbon friendly and sustainable way to achieve the government's net zero and jet targets. Uh, So I guess he wants to know, why are you opposing this? Well, if this is the day that I think it is, then he and I have had this conversation before, but I'll happily, <laughs> happily have it again on air. I mean, the, the fact is the, the, the Committee on Climate Change has been absolutely, um, you know, uh, equivocal about the fact that there should be absolutely no net expansion of airport capacity in the UK if we're going to get to net zero by 2050. That is what the experts say. Um, And and I'm fully on board with that. We're not talking about a modest expansion. We're talking about a huge expansion. At the moment, Luton Airport is saying it wants to expand from having 19 million passengers per year up to, I think it's either, I think it's 34, 32, 34 million. Um, So it's roughly about an extra 40 million passengers per year that's going to require an extra terminal at Luton Airport. That is a huge expansion expansion. It's going to bring with it uh, enormous carbon emissions. It's going to bring with it a huge amount of noise um, disruption, which will affect um, all of those residents in St Albans, Harpenden and other places around Hertfordshire that live underneath uh, the flight path. Um, and until the roads are sorted out or there's a better train connection, um, you know, it's, it could bring more pollution uh, through cars travelling on the roads as well. So I think it's a really, really bad idea. Um, I'm deeply frustrated because this is effectively the government, the Conservative government has a policy of airport expansion and being pro-airport expansion. And for as long as that policy exists, then it means that, you know, airports and those who own airports can continue to, uh, you know, use and follow that policy. Um, There are other examples around the country of where campaigners have been successful at stopping airport expansion. Um, And I hope that campaigners here in Hertfordshire and in Bedfordshire as well will continue to campaign uh, against this. The fact is we have eight years left to stop irreversible damage to the climate. And whilst I recognise that the aviation sector has had a very difficult time during the pandemic, I also recognise that we only have one planet, there is no planet B, and we have got to make sure that we um, do everything possible to, uh, to to save our planet and to save our human species from, from the uh, awful disruption that will come from dramatic climate change. And that includes stopping airport expansion. Uh, Anne has moved it to a local discussion point. She says, I'm very angry that my friends are going to lose their allotments to make way for car parking. I thought that the council was supposed to be for the environment. It is shameful that our area will lose such a beautiful green space and that people are being forced to relocate to a green space at North Close. What can I do to oppose this? This is a decision of the St Stephen Parish Council. It's not a decision 
of the St Albans District Council. Um, and so it's a decision that's been made by the councillors who are most local uh, to, to Anne or Anne's friends. Um, uh, I've made some inquiries. My understanding is that they are moving. Their plan is to move um, the allotments, not just to sort of close them down. Um, but that is a decision, I'm told, that's been taken by the Parish Council after several years looking for alternative plans. And so if Anne and her friends are concerned about it, then I would strongly encourage her to write to the chair of the St Stephen Parish Council. Ryan has said, do you agree with the trials for pedestrianisation of St Albans City Centre that are going ahead this summer? I've heard that this has not been properly evaluated with concerns over access for emergency services, but I do like that it will reduce unnecessary pollution and unnecessary traffic in our area. I'm split and wondered if Daisy has any views. Well, this is being handled by the District Council and the County Council, and they're working together on this particular plan. Um, it is the response, so the, the Hertfordshire County Council is the highways authority, and therefore they are responsible for making sure that any changes to the highways um, and the accessibility there does mean that uh, emergency services can still get through. So it's their responsibility to make sure that that is happening. And I know they take that responsibility very seriously. Um, if, uh, if he or anybody has any concerns, and I would encourage them to write to their local councillors, uh, to their district councillor and or their, their county councillor. Uh, for what it's worth, my you know I have a personal view on this. I quite like the pedestrianisation. I, I enjoy being able to walk around the, the shops and enjoy some of the the stalls at that end of the market um but you know because it is a local uh, council matter my view just has the same weight as everybody else's <laughs> <laughs> and so let's move it to the final question for this month we've already mentioned it a little bit earlier with your uh, special uh, opportunity for potential legislation but this month was inter- uh, there, there was International Women's Day. Um, Angela has asked who are the female academics politicians or other major influences that you've had in your career so far? Can you make any reading recommendations? Yeah oh, that's interesting um, to be honest though, I, I was asked a question not long ago about sort of you know female role models and things and I think one of the things that was quite a, a sad realization was that I don't think I've had very many female role models since the age of about 18. You know, I had female teachers and I had my mom and obviously my, my, my late grandma. Um, uh, and then since going to university, I just don't think there's been very many female role models. And I think that's part of the problem. Um, that said, I think there are some, uh, there are many fantastic women who are now public figures. I really quite like Mary Beard. I think she's uh, fantastic. We've got, um, oh gosh, her name just slipped my mind, but the woman who has, uh, the writer and director of Fleabag and um, and uh, Killing Eve. Uh, oh, she, you know, she's she's kind of a fantastic writer as well, isn't she? I know she's completely gone from my mind. Um, but there are some fantastic people around. Um, so I probably won't get into sort of making any kind of reading recommendations. But um, I do think that actually it, it just really reiterates that I hope that there are more role models around for the next generations to come. Because uh, I think those of us who are, you know, uh, middle-aged uh, and I'm definitely in my 40s and um, it was a sad realization to realize that there weren't that many when I was you know growing up beyond the age of 18 so hopefully collectively we can all provide lots of female role models for, for the younger generations. I think that everybody can agree to that uh, uh, more female role models will make a, a better uh, Britain and a better world as well but for now Daisy I'm going to thank you so much for your time today I'm going to thank everybody for their questions and we will see you again next month. Brilliant thanks very much.